Lord, we just come before you. We thank you this day for your love and your care. Lord, for your spirit guiding and leading as we look at your word, we ask you to take and anoint this time. Make it a special time in your son's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be starting at verse 31, but we've been talking about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. It's, it uh, angered the scribes and Pharisees. They've been trying to figure out how they're going to kill him. He ha- casts out a, a demon out of a man on the Sabbath, and that bothers them a lot. And they tell Jesus that he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the, the flies. So we're going to look at this and see Jesus' answer to them was, you know, if I'm doing it by Beelzebub, how are your, how are your children, your, you know, your disciples doing it? And then he goes into this interesting statement that really bothers people a lot. In verse 31, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But more, whosoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither the world to come. And this is often called the unpardonable sin, the un- unforgivable sin. And people panic about it a lot. And you'll hear people, if you do question and answers with people, eventually, long enough, you'll have somebody ask, well, how do you know that you didn't commit the unpardonable sin? Well, the first answer is, if you're worried about it, you didn't commit the unpardonable sin. Uh, Because you're not going to commit something, it's not a sin you do by accident. And we want to take a quick look at this, because... Jesus says that all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So we want to look at what is the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit has two primary jobs. The first one is once we're saved, he's called the paraclete, the one that comes alongside of us and comforts us and guides us. If you are saved, you are not going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit because he's living in you. And you're not going to blast me his, his major job because his job is to guide, lead, comfort the Christian. Now he has a secondary job in the world. And his job in the world is to draw men to Jesus. And that is, if you're going to blast me in the Holy Spirit, his job is to say, you need Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. And if you're going to blast me him, the only thing that's unforgivable is to reject Jesus Christ. So if you have rejected Jesus Christ, you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit because that's his primary job is to draw people to Christ. Now, the the scribes and Pharisees, they're coming real close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying you're doing all this stuff, and they're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus. Because remember, sin is under the blood of Christ. And this is so important for us to understand. We look at this, and it's a very easy answer. People struggle with this all the time. They're all afraid. Well, how am I, what if I accidentally you know, do this? You're not going to accidentally do this. The blasphemy is a pretty interesting thing to do. And most Christians do not blaspheme God. They may use his name a little empty. But you know, it's hard to blaspheme God if you're his child. You know, it really is. To be able to speak so blatantly against him and say, you know, well, I think you're just worthless and terrible. Now, we may have moments where we think that when everything seems to be going wrong. God, you've lost control. I just don't understand this. But then we come back to it and go, you know what? I, I spoke foolishly. My flesh spoke foolishly. I don't, I don't mean this. And this is why it comes down to it. God is saying, you know, if you speak the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Spirit shall not, 
they shall not be forgiven him. And this is a permanent forgiveness. They've rejected Jesus Christ. And we want to keep this in mind. Nothing we do will uh, make God reject us once we've accepted him. Because we're not saved by works. There's nothing we do to get saved. There's nothing we can do to get unsaved. Uh, this happens all the time. There's all these denominations that say you can lose your salvation. Unfortunately, on CSN, which is the channel I listened to, they had one of the pastors saying that you could lose your salvation. And I'm going, where did you get this? You're, not, you're a good, sound teacher. Where did you get this? And we've got to be so careful about that. Eternal life is, by definition, eternal life. You cannot lose eternal life. Otherwise, you never had eternal life. You had partial life. And that's not what God gives us. Now, many people are not saved. Okay, so we want to be able to understand that many people who say they're saved are not saved. And they'll say, well, I lost my salvation. No, you never had it. You never had the relationship with God. You were never in a relation. You maybe said a prayer. You, you acted and pretended to be a Christian, but you did not have the relationship with God if you no longer have it. Can you get so bad that you don't feel like you are saved? Yes, that's easy enough to do too. You can do a lot of things so that you don't feel like you're saved. But our salvation is not in whether I feel like I'm saved or not. I'm either saved or I am not saved. If I'm in a relationship with God, I am saved and I am going his child forever, whether I feel like I'm saved or whether I don't feel like I'm saved. And I can tell you in 44 years, there have been times when I feel like I'm not saved. We don't go on feelings. And this is one of the questions I, well, I just don't feel God anymore. Well, quit trying to feel him. Stand in the truth. Stand in what he says, not your feelings. Feelings lie to us all the time. Somebody who's married doesn't feel in love with their spouse and they go out and they get into an affair because they just don't feel loved. Well, God didn't say you were going to always feel loved. He didn't say you were always going to feel good in his relationship with him. It's all his gift. And we say, okay, God, I'm your child. I'm your child whether I feel like it or not. You are my God whether I feel like it or not. You're my Lord whether I feel like it or not. And just start learning to obey God's word. And this is becoming a thing that's been on my heart a lot, is people obeying God's word. Even when they don't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense, we need to obey his word. And I think one of our next verses we're going to learn on our, in this church is going to be Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. Most of the time we get into lots of trouble when we lean on our own understanding. God, I know you says this in the Bible, but I'm going to lean on my own worldly understanding and I'm going to do what I think is right. Then we get down the road and go, man, why did I ever do that? It was such a dumb idea. Look at the consequences I'm suffering. We need to be so careful. We are following God or we're not following God. Once we've followed him, we're his. We're in Jesus' hand and, then, and Jesus is in the Father's hand. We cannot get out of that place even if we want to. Jesus isn't going to let us go. And if somehow we manage to get out of Jesus' hand, the Father's not going to let us go. 
And I've heard lots of people, well, I put myself in his hand. I can get out. No, you, number one, you didn't put yourself in his hand. He called you and you responded. So it's still him who did it in the first place. He called you, you responded, and then it was over. You're, you're, that's it. You made your choice. And you're stuck there. And you know what? I thank God that I'm stuck in, in him sometimes. When I don't feel like I'm saved or I'm backslidden and I'm not following him the way I should, I am glad that he's not going to let me go. Because if it was me, I'd say, oh, you don't want to follow me? Get out of here. Stay away. You know, and if you can lose your salvation, what, how do you lose your salvation? You did nothing to get it. At what level is it that you've done enough bad that you lose the salvation that you did nothing to get? Then you have to really be worried, have I done enough bad to no longer be saved? Now, do, do, did I do bad just before I died so I got unsaved the moment before I died and didn't have a chance to repent? How awful that is because that makes God an Indian giver. I'm giving you eternal life. Nope, you don't deserve it anymore. I'm taking it back. Oh, you want it back? Here you get. Nope, you, didn't, you don't deserve it. I'm taking it back. That's not what God does. The very definition, eternal life, tells us it's forever. It's not come and go, take and, and remove. It's eternal. And people will point out these verses that say no, no sinner, uh, no murderers and homosexuals and adulterers will enter into the kingdom of God. Well, in the Greek, those words are habitual. You do it all the time without conviction. And if you're living without conviction of your sin and not repenting and not showing any any repentance, if you're not his child, he doesn't care. If you are his child, he's going to take you home early before you mess up your, his, his name. And this happens to many people who have a sin that they just can't get rid of. They lie so much that they cannot tell the truth, and God says, I'm not going to have you be my representative if all you ever do is lie. Now, he'll let you go a long time before he does this. He'll let you go and say, got to give it up, got to give it up, got to give it up. But if you keep going and will not surrender that area of your life, he'll eventually say, okay, you're going to take you home because you're destroying the testimony. How at that point is, I don't know. I know some people that I believe were saved and went home early because of besetting sins. They just could not get victory over an area of their life. And when they fell, they fell hard and usually fell for weeks at a time and people knew that they were a Christian and it was not a good testimony. God keeps us. Now we say, we'll, I know this person, I'm pretty sure he, got, he was saved. He looked really good. You know, he even became a pastor or a deacon or a teacher. Handled the word of God really well. Well, they either have a besetting sin that they cannot get over or they were never saved. And we go back to the sower of the seed. He cast out the seed. Some of it landed on hard rock. It didn't even spring up. Some of it ended up in rocky soil and couldn't get, take root. Looked like it sprang up, but never took root and produced. Some fell amongst thorns and thistles, grew up nice for a little while, and then the cares of the world choked it out. All three of those seeds did not produce salvation. The only one that produced salvation was the one that fell on good soil and produced. And this is why I really encourage people. How many people have you shared the gospel with? How many people have gotten saved because you've shared the gospel with them? And you may not know all the people because it, you may not be the first person in some cases. You might be, you might, or you might be the first person. And it may take years for them to finally get saved. But are you sharing his gospel? You know, many people have never shared the gospel with people because they're waiting for somebody to ask them about the gospel. And then 
unfortunately, usually they won't share it then because they're still afraid to talk about God. It's really a very sad thing when people won't talk about the one that they're supposed to love. And this is something I keep bringing up and I'm really harping on because it's been on my heart that we're going to be doing evangelism because it's so important. If, if you go out to dinner and you have a great experience on your dinner, you will usually tell people that, hey, I had a really good time. If you had a bad time, you tell lots of people that you have a bad time. If you go see a good movie and you really were impressed in the movie, you usually will tell people, you need to go see this movie because, and you tell them about it. Uh, you know, if you made a great dish, you will tell people about it. Why? Because it is something that's exciting you. We should have a relationship with God that excites us so much that we are willing to talk to people about it. Does it mean we're going to know everything there is to know about it? No. I, you know, if I go to a movie, I may not know everything about that movie because I missed half of it. But I know the scenes that got me excited. I know when I went out to dinner, the, the things that made me excited about that dinner. And I share this with people. We need to be so excited about God that we open our mouth and share. Now, and it's going to be interesting because God will make us, if, we, if we're really his child, he'll make us share one way or the other. Uh, Jeremiah said, you know, God, uh, every time I speak, I get in trouble. I'm not speaking for you anymore. And then it says, your words, his words burned in my mouth. I couldn't help but speak. The disciples had to come out and speak because of the excitement of what they were experiencing at Pentecost. And, and they wanted to explain to people what was going on. And, and they spoke even though they were going to be punished. Do we have that kind of excitement about God? Is he so important to us that we go out and we share so Holy Spirit's job to get them convicted but we speak the words and you know what's really good is that when we speak them the Holy Spirit is the one that fills our mouth anyway we may we may follow scripts and all these other things and it makes us feel comfortable to have a script and say this is what I'm gonna say But you know the real witnessing comes when you get off script and all of a sudden it's the Holy Spirit leading and talking through you because it's very important it's got to be real. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and you know that the, the hostess or the, or the waiter or waitress is speaking the script? It's very robotic. You know, hi, welcome to whatever the name of the place is. We, we, are you dining in today? And they get you seated and you know, and you listen to them say the same exact words to every single person. And you go, okay, do you really mean it? Do you really mean it? And if somebody's new, you expect them to follow a script. And I gave scripts to anybody new because I wanted them to follow it. But the real thing is, do you get the points and put your personality into it after a while? And that's where it really comes down to something being real. And people know the difference between just something that's scripted and something that's real. But you know the most important thing, if we're really going to reach the lost, we have to care for the lost. We have to love them. And the sad thing is, there's thousands of people dying every hour most of whom are going into a Christless eternity and going to hell. We should be motivated to share because we don't know if the person we're talking to, this might be the last person that's ever going to talk to them before they pass into eternity. Because most people when they die are not expecting to die. You know, if you're in hospice or you're really sick, you kind of expect to die. But the average person is not expecting to die the day they die. Because it's something that surprises you. They had plans for that evening. They had plans for the next day. They had business meetings. They had appointments. They had dinner plans. They had all kinds of plans. And all, next thing you know, they're standing before God. 
And if they're lost, that's a terrible place to be. Standing before God in your sins. So we want to just look at this whole process. The Holy Spirit is the one that will minister to people. And the Holy Spirit will give us the words. He will fill our mouth. He will teach us what to say. That doesn't mean we don't go out and, and make plans. We, don't, you know, we, we go out and we study. We know what we're going to say. I've shared with everybody, the, the Romans Road is a wonderful tool for using for evangelism. For all of sin to come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But with the mouth, we confess with our, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we come all of these, and it's all very important to, to work on these things and see how God works in life. And he will take these words, and he will change the words and make them real to, when we speak them. And we speak them, and he changes what it is, and he fills our mouth. And the wonderful thing is when you're witnessing to somebody, and God fills your mouth. Yeah. And you know the difference. You know it when God is taking over. So anyway, the unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus Christ. And that's the Holy Spirit's job, is to bring you to Christ. So to, re to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to blaspheme Christ, to reject Christ. And it's a very simple thing. Because you're not going to ever lose your salvation without, until, unless you reject Jesus. Because then you never had it. And so hopefully that helps people. We're going to look at verse 33. Either, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its fruit. O generation of viper, how can you speak evil of good things? How? For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good treasure. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof on the day of judgment. For by, the wor by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. So here Jesus is saying, make the tree good or make it bad. Okay, and if you've ever planted things, you either get good or bad off off the plant. You don't get a mixed, you know, you don't get bad, bad and good. You get good or good or bad. It all comes down to the roots that that plant is buried in, and what does it draw up? And we see Jesus saying, "You are good or you're bad." And basically, we're told all through the Scripture, "Judge the fruit." You know, if somebody says they're saved, there should be fruit showing that they're saved. There should be improvement in their life. There should be honesty in their life. There should be integrity in their life. There should be honoring God in their life. If there's not, and all you hear is lies and filthiness and, and evil desires, then you have to start wondering, does this person know Jesus? Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, and it doesn't mean that all bad people are totally bad. It just means you, want, you can see by what fruit is produced in somebody's life. Overall. And this is why I share with us, we need to look at our life, even ourselves, and say, am I growing in Christ? Am I in a relationship with Christ, and am I following him? Am I better today than I was last year, last month, six months ago, ten years ago, whatever it might be, whatever? Am I doing better today than I have done in the past? It's a critical thing for us to understand. Because if we're not growing, there's something wrong. Because Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can produce nothing. If we are in Christ and we are attached to Christ, he is feeding us and there should be fruit being produced in our life. We should be getting changed. 
If we're not, then we have to wonder, are we attached to the vine? Am I really attached to the vine? Am I, am I connected? Other, because you cannot produce fruit if you're not connected, and if you are connected, you will produce fruit. You will get better in your walk with God if you're connected. And again, not because I'm striving or trying to do it, but because Christ lives in me, the Holy Spirit lives in me. They crucify my flesh and they change who I am, and I become more like him and produce fruit because he is supplying the life. He supplies the life. If you've ever cross-pollinated uh, fruits or you have taken uh, fruit trees and engrafted a different branch into another fruit tree, you may get a very interesting fruit. If you take an apple branch and you engraft it into a peach tree, you will get apples on the, on the apple branch, but they will taste like peaches because the nutrients that they're getting are for a peach tree. And it's a very strange thing because you get these very funny tasting apples or anything else that you would engraft in it. If we are engrafted into Christ, we will produce Christ. All right? It's just the way it's going to be. Now, we may show some fruit of flesh, but it will be flavored by Christ if we are truly in him because he's the one supplying the nutrients. It will be him. Not us completely. It will be him. And eventually, he'll change us. Because it tells us that we are olive trees. We are engrafted into the olive tree. And the olive tree, I've been told, and I'm not an horticulturist, but I've been told that the olive tree is the only one that if you engraft a, tree, a branch into an olive tree, it changes the branch into an olive branch and produces olives. It will take an apple branch or whatever and turn it into olives. And God always uses the picture of us being engrafted into the olive, and the olive tree represents Israel in the scriptures. And we as Gentiles have been engrafted in that makes us basically spiritual Israel. Not to go so far that we say we replace Israel, but we are made into that plant and being fed by it. So it's an amazing thing that we look at. God is saying, be good. And then it says in verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can you be an evil, speak good things, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever listened to somebody who claims to be a Christian and they don't speak anything kind or nice at all? You have to wonder at that time, do you really know Christ? I'm not going to say they do or don't, but if they can't speak anything kind or in, and they can't speak truth, I have to look at them and I'm going to treat them like an unsaved person because that's what they're acting like. The abundance of their heart is telling me that they are not a saved person. Now, can a Christian speak evil things? Yes, but it's not going to be what they always speak. Not if they're in a relationship with God. And we start doing more and more speaking kindly, speaking lovingly, being kind to one another, saying the right things as we go along. Because it is so important that we let God work out of us. Verse 35 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and the evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil. And this is, a, this is again, this whole picture of what is the fruit of your life. And we don't want to be totally introspective about our life, but we do want to look at our, my, my life and say, how much of my conversation is godly? How much of my actions are godly? How much of my actions are worldly and evil? And if I can't find any good in my life, I'm going to have to take some serious note in my life and say, where am I? Where am I with God? 
Have I lost my first love and I've totally walked away from him and I don't have any treasure? How do we get the treasure in our heart? We spend time in his word. We spend time studying. We spend time in Bible study. We spend time with other Christians talking about God. And we build up that treasure in our heart so that there's something to be drawn from. If you go out and you buy a car, you buy a brand new car and you, and you get a full tank of gas on it and you keep driving it and driving it and driving it and never put gas in it, eventually that car is going to stop running because there's nothing there. Nothing wrong with a car other than no gas. If we do not put fuel in our spiritual tank, it will empty out and there won't be anything produced. And we should be sad when that happens. And again, I've seen people who don't ever read their Bible. I don't know how they can do it. I feel bad if I go two or three days without it and re reading my Bible and studying my Bible. And I'm going, man, how can I do this? And just, you know, we need to be so interested in following and saying, God, I want to be filled by you. I want to be attached to you, Jesus. I want you to feed me and grow me. And I've already shared with you, I have this picture of people in heaven. You're going to have some people that are just emaciated, you know, uh, half-starved beings because they never fed their spirit. And then you're going to have people that are nice and well-fed and, and good-looking and even a little on the plump side because they fed their spirit so much. Which are we going to be? We'll know by what's spoken. You'll know how much you're feeding yourself. People will know how much you're feeding yourself by what do you speak. Are you tearing people down? Are you building them up? Are you showing love and compassion? Are you or, or being harsh on people? Are you, when people are around you, they want to be around you because they feel God's spirit come upon you because they know they're going to hear God's word. Or they're going, oh no, here they come. I want to get away from them. Yeah. And this is not something that you want coming out, out of out, you know, people saying about you. Oh no, I don't want to be around them. But again, what comes out of our mouth. Verse 36 is a, uh, is a kind of a scary ver verse for, that should be for everybody. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For with your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Do we guard our words? Jesus says we're going to have to answer for them. You know, give a reason for why we spoke them. That's a scary thought, especially if you speak a lot. If you don't speak a lot, be careful anyway. But you know, if you're somebody who speaks a lot, you go, well, I just like to speak. I just pour out garbage every once in a while because I just like to speak. Well, God's going to say, why? Why? Now, we confess our sins and, and repent from them. God will cover those and it'll be forgiven. But on Mount, Mount uh, the Transfiguration, Peter, John, and James were up on the mountain with Jesus. And there's a verse that says, And Peter, because he didn't know what to say, said, Shall we make booze for you, and Moses and, and uh, uh, Elijah? But he just, Peter, because he didn't know what to say, he just felt he had to say something. So rather than staying quiet because he didn't know what to say, just said something. The sad thing is we all do that. Got to say something, so let me, let me say something. May not be spiritual, but I'm going to say something. We need to be people of few words and just make sure that when we speak, it's godly. That we're speaking what God desires us to speak. And not try to just speak to be heard. 
not just speak because we're expected to speak. Sometimes teachers will do this. They're expected to speak, so they're going to speak. Yeah. Uh, and, we're going to, and we're told the idle words will be made an account. And this literally means an accounting, like a ledger. Okay, I said this. Uh, well, that was good or bad, and why? Most of, this, most of the important thing is to do is we need to think about our words sometimes and say, why am I going to say this? Is it building somebody up? Is it going to edify or is it going to tear down? Is it being encouraging or is it grumbling and griping and tearing people down? Is it adding to their life with Christ or is it tearing down from their life of Christ? Many people say all kinds of things that make people feel really you know, they're on cloud nine, really excited about God, and then somebody goes, well, when you, when you get a little more, you know, experience under your belt, you'll, you'll come down to, the, down to earth. You know, why? <laughs> why bring somebody down? Let them, if they're having a good time with God, let them have a great time with God. Will they eventually come down to earth for a while? Yes, they will, because we all do. One of the most dangerous times you have in your life is when you are on a spiritual high. You've gone to a revival, you've gone to a camp, you've gone to some kind of meeting, and you're flying high on the spirit. And you're going, man, everything is all good. And why is it come to, and the crash comes so easily? Because usually we let our guard down and Satan gets in real easy. And he just plugs in a little, little problem. And all of a sudden we're like, God, you let me down. Everything was good and, good and, and exciting and you let me down. You let this problem in. And God's saying, didn't you trust me? Don't you trust me? Don't you trust me? This is something we've got to learn to do. Trust God always. He knows what he's doing. Nothing surprises him, and he's got nothing but good. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. We've got to keep that in mind. All the time, God is good. Okay? we got to keep that in mind. When, it, when some things are happening to us and we look at it and say, God, this can't be good. God's saying it's good. You will understand that it's good later. Maybe, maybe in eternity later, but you will understand that it's good at some point. The statement that we put up a long time ago, that God's plan is what I would choose if I knew everything. If I knew what was going to happen 20, 30, 40 years from now, I would choose exactly what God lets come my way. I just would because I would know all things. We will never know all things. So we will never necessarily understand why God puts us through something. And our question needs to stop being why. Because God's not going to answer the whys in most cases. Our answer just should be, God, you're good. I accept this. You've promised it's going to be for good. I accept this. Don't understand it, but I don't need to understand it. The servant does not need to understand what the master is doing all the time. We just be obedient. God's promised it's going to be good, and we just say, okay, God, <laughs> I accept it. I accept that it's going to be good. How much time do you waste trying to figure out the whys? God, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Many people spend most of their life trying to figure out why. And it is really a waste. Because you're, if you're trying to figure out why, you're really living in the past. God, you did this and I don't understand it until I'm not moving forward until you tell me why. 
Maybe it's not as bad as, you know, grumbling and griping about some of the, the past, but it's still the same process. I'm living in the past saying, God, you've got to tell me why. Instead of living in the moment that God has put us in and saying, okay, God, <laughs> let's go. I don't understand it, but let's go. We're going to continue moving forward. How much trouble in your life are you going to be able to get rid of if you just stop asking why? You just accept that God's in charge and that he's got good plans for you. And that he is good and he's going to give you good. You start living in those truths, life becomes easy. Don't have to worry about what he's going to do in the future. Don't need to worry about what he did or didn't do in the past. God, you've got a good plan. And I didn't know, I didn't understand in the past why it happened, but later on maybe I will. And even if I don't understand it in, the, in, the, in this world, it's not my business to understand anyway. God's got a reward for us when we just are faithful. We just walk faithful in his word. We walk faithful in his love and his care and see what he's going to do. Verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from you. But he answered unto them and said, and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign be given you except the sign of Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the in the fish's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall arise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone as of a man, he walks through the dry place seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to the house from whence I came. And when he gets come, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goes and he takes with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell in there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. So we see here the scribes and Pharisees ask for a sign. They've just seen two signs. They've seen the healing of the, of the, of the man with the withered arm, and they've seen the, you know, the, uh, you know, the other sins. You know, and God is saying, I'm showing you signs. I'm showing you signs. He, and he doesn't question them. He says, but I'm not going to show you any more. I'm not showing you any more signs just because you ask. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, if I just saw some miracle from God, I would, I would accept him. Well, the sad thing is they wouldn't. How do we know? Children of Israel, when they left the, uh, Egypt, saw lots of miracles. They didn't follow God completely. We see uh, Balaam, he understood the full power of God, and he's rejecting God half the time. Elijah and Elisha perform miracles all the time, and the people don't turn to God. Jesus is performing miracles all the time. The people don't turn to God. Yes, some do, but most don't. People will not respond to miracles because in their flesh they will just say, well, that was wonderful, but what, do you, what, what else do you have? What else do you have? What have you done for me lately? And this is the way the flesh is. It looks at it and says, oh, that was good. Yeah. What else? Well, we just healed your family member. Well, yeah, but maybe it was, maybe it was a, a coincidence. What else do you have? This happened. Well, maybe it was a miracle. Yeah, people get rid of this all the time and reject the signs. 
Jesus tells them, I'm not, I'm not doing signs just to try to make you believe who I am. Because he knew that they would not. Because it's happened so many times in the scriptures. Miracles and signs and people don't respond. In Daniel, the, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being saved out of the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar responded and he told the people they were going to respond, but most of the people didn't respond. They didn't turn to God completely. They followed as much as the king told them to. But they were, we see over and over, no matter what God does, it's not enough if somebody's not, heart is not inclined to follow him. So Jesus told him, you're only going to have one sign, and it's going to be the sign of Jonah. What was Jonah's sign? Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah ran the other direction. He was headed to Spain. Nineveh, Nineveh northeast of Israel, he goes to Spain. He starts going to Spain, west of Israel. He ends up being cast into sea, swallowed by the great fish. Was in the fish three days and three nights. Just as this verse says that he was in the fish for three days and three nights. And he says, just as the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights. So Jesus already forecast that he was going to be dead for three days and three nights. Which is one of the biggest reasons that I'm a, very much an opponent that Jesus did not die on Friday. Because no matter how much gymnastics you do, you cannot get three days and three nights dying on Friday. You get Friday night, Saturday night. That's two nights. Period. No matter how you look at it, it's two nights. He had to have died to include Friday night. And we've gone through many times the why I believe that and, and the, the proofs on it and the, the Passover celebrations during the period that Jesus was alive and how you could have Passover because Passover was a Sabbath. So if you, he died on the Thursday, had Passover, died on Wednesday, Passover, was celebrated, they, buried, you know, they would prepare for the next Sabbath on Friday, he would be buried. You've got three very solid days and three nights. Then he resurrected. And so... Now, again, is that a salvation issue? No, it's not a salvation issue. I think it's a biblical trust issue, but it's not a salvation issue. And people can do what they want with it. And if you want to believe that he died on a Friday, you're going to have millions of pastors that agree with you. Not a problem. There's probably only thousands of pastors that will say the same thing that I do. But it's not a, you know, it's not a big deal. But Jesus here said, I'm going to be three days and three nights in the <laughs> dead. So he said it. And so we're not going to look at doing anything else. But he says, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment of, the, of, 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 of shall arise in judgment with, of, of this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Now, if you think about this, if you read the book of Jonah, it's a wonderful, wonderful message he, he preached. He goes, you're going to be destroyed in, th in 30 days. <laughs> that was his message. <laughs> Now, I think he put a repent in there in front of it. Repent, you're going to be destroyed in 30 days. And I don't think he had much love in that statement. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh destroyed. Why did he want to see Nineveh destroyed? Because Nineveh was their enemy. It would be like during the Cold War for somebody to go, I'm going to go preach to Russia and, say, and watch Russia get, get uh, turned to God. You know, most, of the, most of the Christians will say, oh, don't you go to Russia. They don't... They they don't deserve to be re repentant. They're our enemy. We want to see them destroyed. This was the attitude that was going through Jonah's head. 
I don't, God, I don't want these people to repent. I don't want them to be forgiven. I want you to destroy them. Do it quickly. Do it yesterday, God. They're, they're bothering us. They're over us. But it says, they repented. And it's an amazing story when you read it. Tens of thousands of people repented in sackcloth and ashes, and God spared the city of Nineveh for another hundred years or so. They, they were spared because they repented. Now, I kind of think part of it was that Nineveh, I can imagine what Jonah li- looked like after having been in the stomach of a fish for, for three days. Being, being hit with that uh, stomach o- uh, acids and everything, he probably looked very pale and bleached out. And you look around at somebody that's looking a little bit like a ghost or a zombie walking around your town saying, repent, you're going to be destroyed in 30 days. You're probably going to take a little notice of it, even though he's not saying it very lovingly. And then what does Jonah do? He goes up on the hillside waiting for God to destroy the city that's repented. And what does he tell God? Well, God, I knew that you were merciful and that you'd re- you would, you would uh, forgive them if they repented. That's why I didn't bring the message. Yeah. He had a hard heart toward them, but he, God still used him. I think Jonah's a great example of, of if we will just open our mouth, whether we want to or not to witness, God can use us. Because it's the Holy Spirit that is going to be the tool that uses us. And Jonah's that great example. His message was not good. His message was not very hard to get them to repent because he did not want them repenting. And yet, God and the Holy Spirit made the entire city repent. Then he goes into the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, shall rise up and condemn this generation, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth, to, the wisdom of, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, behold, one greater than Solomon is here. He's going, you know, this queen came a long ways to hear Solomon speak his wisdom. And there was a time when Solomon was a very wise man in his young days. He asked for wisdom and God gave it to him. And God gave him wisdom in all the sciences and every other area. He was the smartest, most wise man anywhere. And the Queen of Sheba came and gave him gifts. And when you read, go back and read the gifts she gave him, she gave him quite a bit of gifts, and then he turned around and gave her a bunch of gifts when she left. But he says she came just to hear, just to hear wisdom. And behold, one greater than Solomon is here. How many times do we not see how great Jesus is? We kind of reject him. We don't look at how great he is or what he's doing. And we just ignore him in many ways this is a very harsh thing to do because and I've done it I've been there I don't not trying to make anybody else feel I've been there where I just kind of ignore God I get so busy in my own life working living working with playing with the family whatever it is and the next thing you know I haven't spent the time with Jesus haven't been in his word haven't been praying I've been there done that don't want to do it anymore <laughs> probably will do it again in the future <laughs> but it happens And he says, one greater than Solomon is here. They had Jesus in their presence and rejected him. No worse than the children of Israel when God did all the miracles in in, uh, Egypt and did all the miracles to feed them for 40 years and give them water for 40 years and they still rejected him. Man has a hard heart. If we're living in our flesh, we will be hard-hearted and not recognize all that's going on and how good it is. 
We'll go, oh, well, that's circumstances. Or worse yet, we'll go, okay, what have you done for me lately? You did, you did, these, things, you, you know, you did these things last year, last month, but what have you done for me today, God? Why? Because our heart is into the, the things, the things, not the giver. We have to fall in love with the giver, not the things that he gives us. If we are totally in love with God and the things that he gives us will just be the gravy, the icing on the cake, the gravy on the potatoes, you know, not, not what we're seeking. But if we're just looking for the giver, uh, the, the gifts, we'll never be satisfied. It'll never be enough. He can give us everything and it still would not be enough without him. He has to be the one that we seek because we will not be happy. We have this hole in our heart that needs God to fill it. When he's there, it'll be filled. And the great news is just like we said on Sunday, if the only time you come to God is when you need something, you are perpetually going to be in need because God's going to say, you're going to come to me. You're going to come to me. If all you will come to me is when you're in need, then he'll say, fine, you'll be in need a lot. The great news is if we'll come to him all the time, be thankful and seek him, can you imagine the blessings that will come your way? There's some millionaires that honored God with all their heart and sought him, gave him 90% of their income, and they were still millionaires by giving away 90% of what they made. Why? Because they sought the giver. They sought the giver, and God says, okay, if you're going to be faithful with, the, with, the, with everything like that, I'm going, to, I'm going to bless you special. Can you imagine what it would be like to be that close to God that he just says, I can give you anything because I know you're going to use it right, and that you're going to bless others with what I give you, instead of hoarding it all to yourself? There are so many people that there's never enough. You know, in Christian financial uh, counsel, we will tell people, plan for your future. But you don't need 9, 10, 11 million dollars for your, for your retirement. Okay, because you, you, you'll, you'll never spend that much money unless you're being very unwise. But there is that point. Find out what that point is and get that saved up and then say, okay, the rest goes to God. God, you get the majority of what's left. And this is wonderful for us to be there. I'm looking forward to the day my house is paid off so that I can give even more to God than I already give. And I give to God quite a bit. Why? Because he's challenged me on many times to give more. And I'm going, to go, how much do you want? How much do you want? We need to be in that attitude of, God, I'm ready to trust you. I'm ready to trust you. God has never let me down once in my lifetime financially. I've always had a roof over my head. I've always had the utilities on. I've usually had a vehicle or at least some way to get transportation. God has blessed. I've always had my needs met. There's always been food on our table. Sometimes it was hard when I had teenagers eating all the food that came into the house as quick as it came in, but God still had food on the table always. Not necessarily the food that I always wanted, but there was food. I remember once when we were young, we had liver five days a week uh, because that was what was cheap. This was a long time ago. We made liver spaghetti one time. Didn't taste very good. <laughs> we ground up the liver and it didn't taste very good in spaghetti sauce. Uh, but, you know, God provided. We did what we had to. My, son to this, my oldest son to this day won't eat liver because of that <laughs> experience of having liver way too much for about three months. But we see that God wants to provide. 
He wants to provide. And if we're seeking the giver, oh, the joy he has in giving. Because he knows we're seeking him. We're not just seeking him because, okay, God, what do you got me for me today? God, I need this. What do you got? If we're following him, for him being the giver, great things will happen in our life as we will be rewarded for those things that he gives us. He says it, verse 34, when an unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through the dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he will return into the house from whence he came out, and when he has come, he finds it empty and swept and garnished. Then goes he and takes unto himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter into the dwelling and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so shall be even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. Here Jesus is teaching a little bit about demons and unclean spirits. He goes, when they are cast out, they go around looking for some place to dwell. It becomes obvious that demons want to dwell in something. When Jesus cast out the legion of demons out of the man, what did they say? Don't cast us out to wander around. Send us into the pigs. And he sent him into the pigs, and the pigs went crazy and ran off the cliff and, and killed themselves. Because the pigs were smarter than men, obviously. <laughs> they, they go, we're filled with demons, we're going to get out of it. You know, we're killing ourselves. But he says, when the demons are killed, are cast out, they go looking for a new place. And eventually, they'll come back to the place that they were cast out, and they're going to see, is it been filled? Has it been filled? So if somebody has demons cast out of them, they better put God into that, that dwelling place because the Holy Spirit and demons cannot dwell together in the, same, in the same body. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, you cannot be demon-possessed because the Holy Spirit is already there. And the Holy Spirit is not going to share your body with demons. Period. End of story. If the Holy Spirit is in you and he is if you're saved, you cannot be possessed. Now you might have a demon around you a lot, whispering in your ear, but you will not be possessed by that demon. Now if you do not get saved after you get demons cast out and you have an empty house and the demon comes back and he finds an empty shell, God says he's going to go find some other brothers to come live with him. And he doesn't find weaker ones, he finds stronger ones and it says the state of the is worse than it was before. This is a serious thing. It is a serious thing that people have. We've got to understand there's a spiritual world out there. And we are in battle in this spiritual world. We've got to keep that in mind. I, I am filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. We are in battle with the demonic world. Satan does not want to let us get away with anything and grow in Christ. He has to ask permission to take, a, take and do stuff to us but he wants to destroy us. He wanted to destroy Job, and if God had given him permission, he would have killed Job. But he says, no, you can't do that. I'm not giving you that much permission. Not everybody has that restriction on their life. Nick St. James went down to preach to the, to the uh, South American Indians, and they landed his plane, and he and his buddies got killed. They mar were martyred. God could have easily said, no, you're not going to die. But he used their death to be able to bring their wives later in to witness to these Indians and bring them to Christ. We see this over and over again. The disciples all died martyrs' deaths. Horrible martyrs' deaths in most cases. 
beheaded, crucified, uh, torn asunder by having their bodies, their bodies uh, hooked to four animals and pulled in four different directions until they fell, you know, came apart. Uh, Thomas being driven the lance through it, through him several times in the middle of a crowd. You know, all these different ways that they died. It's said that Isaiah was sawn in two, was put into a log and sawn in half. Why did these people die and others did not? Who knows? God used it. It's his desire. When they die, there's a martyr's crown for them in heaven. You've got Jeremiah who lives until old age before he dies. You've got John who lives to old age, the only one of the disciples that lives to old age. And it wasn't out of failure of trying to get him. They tried to boil him in oil. They tried to put him on the insane asylum. They tried poisoning him, and God would not let him die. Finally, they released him, and he ended up dying of old age. But why John and not the others? Is John that much more special than everybody else? I don't think so. He just was given the grace to say, I'm going to touch you. You're going to live. John the Baptist, a faithful follower of God, preaching the coming of Christ, gets beheaded. You know, we don't know why God chooses what, he's, what he does. We don't understand why God heals some people and doesn't heal other people. We don't understand why he lets people go home early at a young age and then makes other people stay alone until they go beyond, you know, seem to be useless in their life. It's all what he desires. We need to seek the giver, not the gifts. And if we're sitting there saying, God, whatever you want, whatever you want, God, I'm willing to bend my desires to yours. And that is the one place where we have to be. I'm going to bend my desires, God, to what you want. And he's going to do that. If you want your desires, get ready for having him give you all kinds of things to make you bend your desires to his. Because we can never put God in a box. And I don't know if you've ever heard this, but if you try to put God in a box, he's going to purposely step outside that box and do something that you don't think he can do because he's not going to be saying, I have to do things this way. I believe this is one of the reasons that Jesus did not heal people the same way so very often. You know, one guy, he spoke to a blind man and he was healed. Another guy, he picked up... Uh, dirt and he spit in it and made, made mud cakes and put it on his eyes. Another, another one anointed with oil. Why did he do this? Because can you imagine if he healed somebody from blindness the same way every single time? There would be the cult of how to get healed by blindness. This is how Jesus did it, so we're gonna, that's the only way you can be healed by blindness, is to do it this way. So I think Jesus on purpose did it multiple different ways so that we would not get this idea of this is the one and only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. But how he does things can be amazing. It's so fun to watch God work because he is so creative in the way he works. He will touch people in ways that are special to them. When you look at it and say, God, how, could, how would you ever do something like that? That makes no sense whatsoever. And we see that he'll do whatever it takes to draw people to him. Put the right words into people's mouths so that they will come to the him. And it says that when the spirit comes back into this person with more demons, their end state is worse. If they do not put God in there when their demons cast out, they are going to be worse off. The man that with the legion cast out of him, he wanted to follow Jesus. You know, he's going, can I go with you? I just want to hang out with you. 
And Jesus was, no, stay here. Be an evangelist here. He got filled with the Holy Spirit. He got filled with God and said, I'm going to follow God. So much that he wanted to be one of the followers. And God said, you're going to, Jesus said, you're going to do more, more good here in your town. You already were the evangelist. They saw somebody that was crazy trying to kill himself in his right mind. I love that statement. They, they saw him in his right mind. When we're sinning, when we're not following God, we are not in our right mind. Even if we think we're in our right mind and we're following worldly wisdom, we are not in our right mind. When we're following God and listening to his wisdom and his truth, we are actually in our right mind because that's the godly mind. That's the mind we're supposed to have. That's the mind we were created to have. Adam and Eve were created perfect with a life that was going to live forever. They sinned and brought death into this world. Do you realize our body was created for it to last forever in its original format? It was hard to imagine, especially when we look at today and we, we're lucky to get into our hundreds. And we're looking at Adam and Eve were created to be eternal beings, no death, no destruction, no, no disease, no sin. If they hadn't sinned, there would have been a perfect, long life. And by long, I mean eternal, because that's what we were created to have. Jesus came down so that we could have eternal life given back to us. And what was his definition of eternal life? This is eternal life, that you may know the Father and him that the Father sent, Jesus. Eternal life is knowing God intimately. Not this half-hearted thing, not uh, I'm going to know you as long as you do good, you know, do good things for me, but that we know him and we follow him. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your care and love for us. Lord, we ask you to keep in mind with us that we seek the giver. Seek you and enjoy you and then be able to enjoy the blessings that come, not because we're looking for the blessings, but because we are looking for you. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen.